Hello and welcome to the HR Sucks podcast, where we'll get down to the good, the bad, and the crap of workplaces today. This is our second episode of the Champion Series, where we talk to championship athletes about what it takes to win every day. I know you're asking, what does that have to do with HR? Well, it's leadership, teamwork, and individual performance. Everyone working together, the same goal, just like in any company. Today on our podcast, we have a very special guest. I mean, he's like whatevs. He's won, you know, five championships with my favorite team, the Los Angeles Lakers. He's won a couple WNBA championships as a coach. He's a basketball analyst, philanthropist. What else? It's not often you see someone who is still relevant 30 years after their playing career ends. Michael Cooper, welcome to the show today. Thank you. So you've you've had a long career as an athlete and coach. What are you doing now? Well, um, I um, first and foremost, being a husband and a dad, uh, I have four kids and uh, my youngest, uh, Niels, is 15. So it's kind of fun uh, to actually be around him uh, all day, as opposed to my first three kids when I was playing professionally we were always gone or doing something so I very rarely did I get a chance to be uh, a dad to Michael the second which is my oldest Simone which is my daughter she's the second and then Miles Cooper um, who lives in El Paso and now I've uh, been remarried and now I have uh, my son Neil so spend a lot of time doing that I do some uh, uh, analysis work for the ABC and I still work with the Lakers on the communication PR side. Very cool. So what do you think? I mean, again, it's not often you see someone who maintains their relevance after decades of playing. Why do you think you stayed relevant all these years? I think the most important thing is that I try to stay in our community, uh, being from Los Angeles, being from Pasadena, uh, and now living in Los Angeles, I try to continue to give back. I think definitely winning championships definitely helped. Uh, we, went, we won five championships in the 80s. We went to the finals nine times. And uh, people don't forget about champions. So uh, I think that has helped me. But again, it's just my work that I do in the, in the community with working with kids. Um, I have this concept I call Coop's 5Ds. They are determination, dedication, desire, discipline, and decision-making, and always giving back to the community by giving basketball camps or going out and speaking at uh, awareness groups and and homeless shelters and kids at risk, uh, wayfinders. Uh, I think that has definitely helped me too. Yes, and I love 5Ds. I've obviously been a part of it for the last, I don't know, eight years or so, and it's a great concept. Um, that kind of leads me into coaching and what that means for our community kids these days. You were coached by one of the greatest coaches in NBA history. What do you believe set Pat Riley apart from other coaches? What did he do in order to achieve buy-in year after year from you all? Well, first of all, he had the nice hairdo. It was slicked back and the Armani suits back then in the <laughs> 80s which were very expensive. <laughs> that alone and the, the, the visual perception of him says, wow, he can coach. But I think the one thing and most important thing to me is Pat Riley was very, very, very uh, aware of his attention to detail. 
uh, as you're coaching men, and that's who he was coaching, and guys at a high level, you have to separate yourself from the ordinary coach, and you have to do different things to attract their attention. The same old scouting report that we were getting after a while becomes ho-hum, and you kind of say, here it comes again, here we go. Coach Riley always changed it up. He uh, would give us videotapes, and he would put a code word in there to make sure you watched it, and your code word would be specifically for you about a player. Uh, his, uh, uh, his practice sessions, his practice plans were geared to what in the NBA, you can't take everything away from a team. You have to take one or two things. And I thought that was very unique because as a young player coming up and the different coaches you have, they're trying to take, take, take away everything. We got to stop them from doing this. We got to stop them from doing that. And Pat was the first coach to me is like, Hey, listen, we're not going to take everything, but let's take away the first two good options. And uh, when we did that, we were successful. So I think that was his key to success with the type of team that we had in the 80s and ultimately became Showtime. That's great. And, and did you take any of that into your own coaching philosophies? Oh, for sure. The same things that he used to use on me, I used uh, when I started coaching in WNBA in the 2000, uh, coaching high elite women playing at a high level, Lisa Leslie, uh, Tamika Dixon, uh, Delisha Milton, just to name a few. And the fun part about that is I thought that I was talking on deaf ears until I heard one of them and they didn't know I was in the room. They was like, you know what, Coach Cooper said, we got to do this, said we got to do that. So I knew then that it was sinking in and that uh, I just kept uh, uh, stand, stand, uh, sticking with, uh, you know, Pat Riley's concept, which was mine. And I tweaked it a little bit because obviously I'm coaching women and not men. But that helped uh, me to achieve the success that I had in the WNBA of winning two back-to-back championships for the LA Sparks at that time. They had never won a championship. Right, exactly. And, and I know you were an assistant prior to that. And then they went to the finals for the first time. And then they named you head coach, right? Yep. All right, so I guess you were on to something. What was the uh, greatest lesson you learned about teamwork? and how it relates to winning championships. Well, that goes back to something that Jerry West, uh, one of the greatest players ever played this game, who was the logo, the insignia on the NBA jerseys that's worn around uh, and throughout the league. Uh, Jerry always said team. And when I, when, before he said this, I used to think team is okay, we're all here. We just gotta do our thing within the team concept. But Jerry made me understand what team meant together, everyone achieves more. And when you look at it and and you really listen to what that means, it's the team comes first, but through the team concept, you can shine as an individual. There was Magic who did magic things. There was Kareem who had the sky hook. There was Michael Cooper who was a defensive player. So different things can go on within the team concept, but the ultimate goal is we achieve one goal, and that's, you know, in our case was to win a championship. Uh, and that was important to me from Jerry West uh, that really helped me realize what team basketball was about. I love it all. What um, you've now, I mean, you've coached so many different groups. You've coached professionals, you've coached D1 and, and you coached, you know, the boys in your community. What were some key differences from one group to the other and and what were some of the misconceptions you had going into coaching a different group well the uh the 
one biggest thing is that any coach has to realize is who you are coaching. And the misconception is that you treat everybody the same. Um, having an opportunity to coach uh, for 14 games with the Los Angeles Lakers in 94 uh, or 97 season, when uh, they fired a coach, Magic came on, Magic coached four games, and then he left me as a head coach, is that you're coaching high-level elite basketball players. But the team we were coaching, we had a lot of rookie kids that came in there, so you couldn't coach the, the rookie kids like you could coach a five- or six-year vet because their job is to understand the NBA, the in-and-outs, the everyday work, uh, the fatigue factor, the travel factor, uh, those kind of things went into coaching rookies as opposed to real veteran players. Uh, having going down, as you said, I coached D1 women's college basketball. Women are different than men. Uh, women are more on the, uh, the mental aspect. They have a mental grasp of the game a lot better. Uh, coaching with college women, again, at USC and not uh, you know not a championship type of team, but the goal was to turn them into championship type of thinkers and that took a different kind of mentality coming from a coaching perspective you couldn't work them as hard because they're true student athletes you have to save a little bit for the academic work because I couldn't get it all out of them in the athletic side then going to the coaching women professional women uh, which was great but again women don't have the athleticism that the men have but again, their intellect of the game is on a higher level because even when we're four or five years old, we're always taught that women are smarter than guys, and they are. And that process carries over. So again, now losing the factor that I don't have student athletes, I truly have women athletes, uh, but they still have to be coached a little bit differently. Uh, I, tr I try to take a little bit of the concept of, of these are men and these are women out of it and just coach them like basketball players, professional basketball players, and we're very successful at doing that. Then coaching young kids is what I do today with my program, 2-1 Elite, started by my son, Michael Cooper, the second. Uh, I, these are young, young kids. And the most important thing about that coaching to them is the, develop, is, is the development of players, that's important, but it's to make sure that the kids are having fun. If kids are having fun, they will learn a lot faster than when you're trying to force things on them. So all the levels that I've coached at, oh, and then uh, coaching in the D-League, and you forgot that, Kat, because I won a championship in the Albuquerque Thunderbirds, so I have eight uh -huh. automatically. But coaching those guys who are one step away, whether it be athleticism, whether it be intellectual, whether it be the attitude, and that's big at the D-League because a lot of guys don't get to the league because their attitude sucks. and if that's the case, then you have to kind of curve that and talk to them about that. And hey, listen, young man, this is why you're not there. Because I did do some background work on a lot of our players on why weren't they in the league. Well, Coop, this guy has a bad attitude. He doesn't like this kind of coaching. So those are some of the things that I use to my advantage to help me be able to coach them to get the best out of them. And then last but not least, coaching in the now big three Ice Cubes League are players that are done but they still have that aspirations of playing. And I think that's the greatest thing that three on three half court. I didn't know how that was going to be successful, but I've been coaching in that for two years and to coach players like, um, uh, Carlos Boozer, uh, a couple, a couple of well-known players that are out of the league now, 
was a lot of fun. Baron Davis, he was one of my key players on our team uh, that still think they have it, but they don't. And again, three on three is a selfish game. And one of the things I try to bring to it was still that team concept uh, made me successful there. So I've covered the gamut in coaching at all levels and I've been able to survive and I've had some very, very good highs and there's been some lows, but it's pretty much been maintained pretty consistent. Uh, and that's the joy that I've had in coaching at every level. Very good. And sp speaking of those lows, it, well, first of all, I left the G League stuff out because I wasn't about to have a five minute introduction on all your accolades, right? I'm here to, I'm here to keep you humble. Thank you. <laughs> uh, tell me, tell me about a time you made a big coaching mistake. What was the situation and how did you go about ensuring it wouldn't happen again? Well, I think the biggest mistake I made was when I was coaching with the Denver Nuggets and uh, we were playing the San Antonio Spurs and Carmelo Anthony, who plays with the Portland Trailblazers now, was what my star player on that team, along with Kenyon Martin and a couple of other players. And Carmelo was uh, coming back on defense. He had shot the basketball and was coming back. Somebody stepped on his shoe. And as he's running down the floor, their fast break coming at us. We were up by seven and they're coming down at us. And his shoe came off, and he turned around to go pick up his shoe. San Antonio comes down, they score, cut the lead down to four. I call a timeout, and I just rip into him. I said, Carmelo, why would you do that? Well, Coach, I had to go back and get my shoe. I said, Carmelo, you're better than 80% of those players with one shoe on. And, they, and most of them got both shoes on, and they're nowhere near you. I said, right <laughs> at that moment, then, we got to play defense. You got to play defense. And so anyway, I ended up taking him out of the game. We go back and this is like the, about the end of the third. We start the fourth quarter and I still kept him on the bench. And they, San Antonio catches us. They start going up. And in my mind, I'm trying to prove a lesson to him coaching. And I think it was a bad mistake because by the time I got him back into the game, which is about three minutes later, and they were up by five, it was we couldn't catch him and we ended up losing a game by like seven points eight points and nobody ever said anything to me about it but in my mind that was the one thing that i said that i should never have let that happen i shouldn't have let my my um uh what would you call it my ego personal, my personal <laughs> beliefs or yeah ego i don't, I don't necessarily I'm just yeah trying to send a message uh to the detriment of the team. And I think that, that was the biggest thing. That's probably the biggest lesson that I've learned. I never let that happen again. I didn't, I didn't know that story. It's a story I haven't heard about. Yeah, See, you don't tell me anything. First time thing, yeah. <laughs> so when building a coaching staff around you, um, and this is for any listeners that are, you know, founders or hiring managers, what key characteristics are you looking for? I think as a coach, building his staff, um, for me, and, and this may differ from a lot of other coaches, but for me, the first and foremost thing that I would like to, to start with is knowledge of the game. A lot of coaches would look at loyalty, and I don't believe in that because I believe in, in, in um, make, get, giving coaches the opportunity to go on and be head coaches somewhere in their career. And the only way you do that is by them understanding the game. Yes, loyalty is up there for me because I think that's important. You don't want to hire somebody that's, that's after your job. But again, I don't mind that. I've hired people that wanted my job. But as long as they did their job, 
they were eventually going to get to the position that first seat. As a first assistant, second assistant, third assistant, your job is wanting to sit in that first seat. Because a lot of coaches, young coaches and assistant coaches, don't realize the temperature from that second seat to that first seat because it all falls under you. So my first thing would be their knowledge of the game. Uh, my second thing would be probably loyalty. The third thing that I would say that is important to me is a work ethic. Uh, your assistant coaches or a assistant coach, and I've been one, you have to put in an extra amount of work to kind of like to the glorification of the head coach. And anything that you do gets passed on to the head coach. And the head coach, for some reason or not, and this wasn't me, some coaches don't, don't see what you see. So when you give them something, they take all the glory for it. So at the end of the game, they're announcing, so coach, what did you do? Well, you know what? We made the changes and I, was, I did this and I did that, knowing that the assistant coach gave you that information. And as assistant coach, you can't be stuck up and you can't be a chip on your shoulder. You have to be able to, your job is there to assist the head coach and make him look good. And if you do that, then all that uh, positivity flows down to you. And one day, that head coach is saying, and most head coaches have done this, hey, you know what, that was my assistant coach. He's doing a great job. He got me the information, whether it be an offensive play or a defensive uh, decision. He did that. And that's how good, good assistants become great head coaches. And I very, and so when I'm looking at assistant coaches, those are the three things I'm looking for. Okay, and just in your history of coaching, do you usually take the same team with you or are, you act, are people actively applying for coaching positions? As assistant coaches? Mm -hmm. um, in the past, I've taken one, two people with me, but most of the time, depending on where you're going, uh, you probably want to surround yourself. Uh, you, well, you always probably like to take that one coach with you. Uh, looking in the NBA, I think uh, Phil Jackson took Tex Winters with him from Chicago to the Lakers, and he moved around with him because Tex was the architecture of the triangle offense. So Phil knew it, but that was Tex's offense, so you want to do that. So for me, I like to take – if my assistant coach's strength is defense, I like to think that's mine, but I also like to have other options. Usually I'm going to take that defensive-minded coach with me, but uh, it's very rare that a coach – well, I wouldn't say too rare, but most of the time coaches take two, two, sometimes a coach take his whole staff wherever he goes if they're available and they're not coaching anywhere. But most of the time a coach would take one or two other assistant coaches with them when he moves around to different teams. Got it. And so if it, at any time when you had a staff applying for a position with you, what are some of your favorite questions to ask them? Well, I'm more specific to what I'm looking for. And if this coach is a defensive-minded coach, I'll ask him what's his favorite defense, uh, whether it's man or zone. And once they get into that, then I next the next biggest question, because they're going to always, hey, I, this is when I know this works, this works, this works. And then I'll ask them, well, why? Why is it working? Why, why did it work that last time? Because I might be taking a Division II assistant bringing him up to division one and that two, three zone defense he likes down there is not going to work up here because you've got better athletes that can shoot further out. You're going against better teams that can really figure out your defense. So those are the questions for me is uh, what, what is his best, what is his favorite defense or what's his favorite offense? 
and why? Is there a right or, or wrong answer? Um, depending on what I'm looking for, yeah, and depending on what level we're at, because if I take a college coach to the pros with me, as I did in the WNBA, the answer, if I ask them, why is that your favorite? And they say, well, it's because of this or that. And I'm thinking another way. Well, that's wrong because you should, knowing that you're stepping up to WNBA, you should have something ready for up there because you're going to be playing against a Brittany Griner, uh, Simone Augustus, uh, players like that of elite talent. And if you can't explain to me why, they, why they're able to figure your defense out, because I know the answer. I'm going to do what I want to do. I just want to know if I can come to you with something and ask you, hey, give me a play or give me a defensive stop. It's, we're up by two, ten seconds left. I need a defense. They, we, they've been killing us. Like, give me something. And they come with something whack. Oh, no. You actually might have signed your exit <laughs> route quick. <laughs> All right, so I can't give any listeners some uh, insight. So in, in case you have any openings of what the right and wrong answer is. So I feel like if they say zone, they're out automatically. Uh, you know what, you're, you're real close on that cat because I'm a man to man. I, I love zones. I think zones are trick things that you use. But you, in the, it, again, it depends on what level you're at. In the WNBA or in the NBA, a zone only works one or two possessions. So I believe, and I firmly teach, and that's what I coach, is man-to-man. You got to pull your sleeves up and suck it up and get down and get busy with people. And you got to be able to keep a good offensive player in front of you for two or three dribbles in order for our team defense to get over there and help you. But if you think you're going to run a zone consistently at the NBA level, then you're going to look at Steph Curry getting 70, uh, Kevin Durant getting 80, <laughs> your team getting beat by 50, and me losing my job and you losing your job because you're a sucky assistant. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what are your pet peeves? Do you have any? You're always such a joy and you're always in a great mood. What are some of your pet peeves? Pet peeves? Uh, hmm. I don't really have any. I don't have any pet peeves. I, I, um. See, I guess like for me, whining, like I can't take when people whine and they whine in like a particularly like higher pitched voice than their normal voice. So give me and an it, example of somebody whining. If so I'm whining, coach and I tell okay. you, coach, can't you get it right? Get the defense right. Whining, I guess. No, that's fine. Right. But but no, that would, be, like, that would be like, oh, I just, yeah, go ahead. They're just like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whining is like, oh, I like just coming up with excuses, you yeah, know, like coach, I gave it to you. I thought I gave it to you. Coach, I am so sorry. Yeah, I hear you like that. I, that doesn't bother me because if you do that one time, then I, I, I may keep you on the staff, but I won't ask you anything. And you'll move down the list and your job will strictly be just to deal with somebody shooting or working with somebody conditioning. You won't be part or, of the activity mm. as far as designing the game plan for the game itself. So really, I, no, I don't. Um, or not taking accountability. That's a big one for me. Like, it, like, just admit your mistakes so we can move forward. People are so, when staff just does not want to take responsibility for something not being done or that just drives me nuts. Well, uh, well, I guess if I have one whiny thing, it would be those coaches that try to backstab you. You know, uh, I came across that incident well, well. for uh, a quick moment 
but I got rid of that quick. But a guy that's going behind your back, uh, and I don't know if that's whining or, or pet peeve. That's just probably just a, you don't do that kind of shit. Uh, right. But again, I, I don't really have any because I can figure you out in our first conversation and I will put you accordingly. And uh, if you're sharp and you got things about you and you're saying the right things, and sometimes you can say the wrong thing, but you, you're still making a conscious effort to do the right thing, I can work with you that way. So I don't really have anything. I just, but, you know, like I tell most coaches, uh, and this is in the past, I would tell coaches this. Listen, if you ever want this job, my job, if you ever want this first seat, you can have it. All you got to do is come tell me, coach, I'm ready to take over. And I'll, in the end of the season or whatever, I'll step aside. That's how I am. I was. Mm -hmm. But don't backstab me to get it. Don't go behind my back. Don't uh, uh, do anything detrimental to the team. And I give you a scouting report. You give me something fake, but I don't hardly ever go off of too many of my assistant scouting report because, again, it goes back to loyalty, and which is number two. And if, if you're loyal to me, you're going to give me what I need. That's my thing. But don't, I, I, that's to me is really, really important. Don't backstab me for this job because there's too many jobs in, around the country to backstab for this here because you know what? You may do it to me, but you guarantee I'm going to put the word out on you. And I might go to HR <laughs> and put it out on you that way. <laughs> <laughs> there you have it. End of the show. Um, tell me, tell me the craziest. It could be a player. It could be a coaching staff story. I mean, just tell me a, a crazy story. I know you have a ton of them. A crazy story about yeah, what? Yeah, like it could be about, it could be a coach, a coaching, an assistant coaching story. Like they got left back somewhere or they had. But it was about me as a player. Okay. Uh, in the NBA back in the 80s, this was before, uh, all this craziness that you have to go through the lines and all of that. Back in the 80s, you used to get dropped off in front of the airport and you could walk right through the airport with no customs or anything like that with your bag in your hand and you could walk mm -hmm. right to the gate. All you needed to know was what gate your flight was leaving from. And uh, you go to the gate and if the plane is low, you just walk on and get on your seat. Well, being a rookie, and this was my first time with the Lakers, I didn't understand that. And <laughs> what people started saying, well, what, what was part of the rule for the Lakers is if you were late for a flight, that was a thousand dollar fine. Now, once, okay, so if you were late for a flight and the flight took off, you had to pay for your own flight. Well, first of all, you're, it's a thousand dollar fine that you've not been on a plane. Then you have to pay for your own flight to get to wherever you're going. And this flight happened to be going to Dallas, which meant I had to take two stops because the early flight we were leaving on was a nonstop straight there. So the team got there, so you, you pay for your own flight. If you weren't on the bus when the flight landed, that's $500 fine. So, and then, and then usually when we got there, we went straight to practice. So when you get on the bus to go to the flight, okay, and you're not on the bus to go to practice, that's a $250 fine. When we get to practice, if you didn't have your practice closed, that's $200 fine. And because you weren't at practice, practice was a $1,500 fine. Ooh, okay. So that's a lot of money. That's like six, $7,000 right there. So what happened is I missed the flight. And I had all, and I'm a rookie now. I'm not making a lot of money at all. So that 
that piece of kind of change coming out of my pocket was bad. I missed the flight. And back then, <laughs> you could stand at the term, you know, where the flight hooked right. up to the plane. I was mm -hmm. standing there and I was going like that, waving my hand, <laughs> trying to get them to come back. And once they start backing away, that's it. But the cruel and harshest thing was that all my teammates were in first class looking at the window going like this. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to go back out, book my flight. I ended up getting there later on. And I said, you know what? I will never, ever, ever miss another flight. And to this day, I've never missed another flight on anything. On it, nice. From the NBA to the WNBA to the D-League to Big Three to nothing. I'm always there three hours before. And Mike, my son, who's one of my coaches, Deuce, used to be like, Dad, why are you up here? If our flight left at 9 o'clock, I'm at the airport at 6. Yeah, he's like the opposite of you. Yeah, <laughs> total opposite. He, if the flight he's, is nine, he's like he's running. He's there at 8.45. <laughs> oh, man. Coop, that was a great story. Where can uh, listeners find you and stay up to date with all of your uh, shenanigans? Hey, I got Showtime with Coop podcast, Insightful BS with my NBA friend, uh, teammates and friends. Uh, you can get on Spotify, but please, please, Showtime with Coop. Love that. Um, thank you so much for being here. I know you're very busy and you have a lot of things going on. Um, well, thank the you, everyone. is on shutdown now. There's nothing <laughs> That's <to do>. true. <laughs> and we're in COVID. You can't go visit nobody. <laughs> All right. You're right. It's about time. What I meant was it was about time you got on my podcast. Um, I appreciate your time nonetheless. Um, you can find us on Instagram at HR Sucks. Thank you everybody for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a beat. HR Sucks, we know, but missing your flight and getting fined six to $7,000 sucks even more. Thank you and I'll catch you all on the next episode. <laughs>